if I had this technology, what would it let me do? And if, you know, like, like even Jay Leno said, you know, he may be a bit more skeptical than me, I think, but he said, the idea that you're going to get into one of these cars and go in the back and drink, drink whiskey uh, all day long um, or, or, or have, you know, parties or whatever, uh, that's absurd, you know, but that would be exactly what people, even the videos now show people, hey, if I, if I can drive on the highway, what am I going to do? I'm going to basically fool around. I'm going to basically do do things which are dangerous. And, and that's what I'm going to post and be proud of on social media. That is the human condition. You have to engineer for the human condition. And the human condition means I don't have to drive. Good. Where's the whiskey? Right? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Autonicast. My name is Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the Communications Director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I am Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter with TechCrunch, also introducing Alex Roy, whose title will just say Special Projects with quote marks around it. And uh, today we're joined by, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Um, uh, if you don't know Horace Dudu, you clearly haven't listened to the show much. He's probably been on our show more than I think any other guest. Um, uh, but he is Mr. Micromobility. Uh, he's also been a, a, an analyst and, and follower and prognosticator of all things technological for a very long time. Uh, a, a guy I have a ton of respect for, as we all do. Um, Horace, thank you so much for making the time to come and uh, debate me maybe about uh, autonomous vehicles. Well, thanks. It's great to be uh, great to be here again, and uh, always love the uh, the the provocative uh, comments and uh, and debate. And um, and I'm glad to uh, you guys gave me another chance to talk about autonomy. So I wanna I wanna back up for a moment because this all came about because Ed saw a tweet of yours. So what was the what was the offending tweet, Ed? I remember this tweet. I'm pretty sure if I recall what it was. You said first. You said while hundreds of billions will be spent on autonomous driving with conferences and politicians promising imminent global change, and twenty years later it will be completely forgotten. Why would we dream of self-driving cars when we haven't got self-driving uh, planes, self-conducting trains, or self-driving buses or tractors or tanks? The technologies for these applications were available years ago with clear slash obvious returns on investment. So yeah, I mean, I look, I I think the the part. Of, of your tweets that I disagreed with the most was that in 20 years, this will all be forgotten. I think there's a big difference between saying, you know, we're really early in a slow process versus, you know, we're going down a dead end that in 20 years we'll look back on and, and either have forgotten or we'll laugh at or whatever else. So I, I definitely hundred percent agree that, that we are early in a very slow process and that this is something that people should be thinking about in a in a hundred year time span rather than a a, a five year or ten year time span even, um, but that doesn't you know I don't I don't think that means in twenty years this will be forgotten. I will also say, you know, a big part of the problem, arguably one of the biggest problems in the self driving space, is that people, particularly at conferences and politicians, are promising imminent global change, and those two words, imminent and global are the really important ones, right? Because we can agree that we're at the beginning of a long-term change, but like we can also agree it's not going to be imminent. Anybody who says it is, 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 is fooling themselves or others. And it, it's not going to be global in the sense that it will be ubiquitous globally, uh, potentially even in a hundred years. And, and I think that, you know, you can, hopefully you can, 
agree with all with those very reasonable statements and and not think that autonomy is is a right but the point is my point is also about calibrating investments because yeah. the misallocation of capital to this technology um, is going to cause a backlash the 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 problem is that you've had I don't know how many tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars invested in something which will not pay off and as a result there will be sort of a you know, there will be an accounting for that. And as a, one of the consequences of that will be f- effectively a, a reputation loss for this idea. Uh, uh, people will, will, will be having an adverse reaction uh, to this idea to be seen as a fraud in some ways. And, and so by that, it'll set back the effort in many ways. The, the proper approach to solving this problem is like I did suggest these alternatives where you go to smaller subsets of the problem and solve them. And then, you, you know, kind of have a have a gradual, um, modest and humble approach to solving the problem. And, and this is why, if anything, I'm, 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 I'm disappointed by is this sort of the arrogance and the assumption that it's going to achieve much more than it will. And I think that's going to actually be a problem long term. And forgotten by that, I mean that it will be seen with with this um, um, with, with this like distaste and 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 sort of people who want to you know uh, bury the, the the history somewhat. Um, but in the meantime, great progress will be made in, in in limited domains, which will really will be the productivity plateau, as they call it. You know, you'll have the disillusionment, but you'll have the productivity plateau coming from you know, very narrow applications, which which will be very valuable and profitable. But I, I don't think it's going to be seen as, well, you know, I'm going to have um, a, an autonomous car as my main car. So before Alex jumps in, I just want to quickly, quickly, quickly ask, um, where would you, where do you think governments and, um, you know, cities should be allocating money towards if, if this is a, a misspend right now? Yeah, I think governments. Yeah, governments haven't been misspending all that much, although they they've certainly been persuaded to to operate these trials. But um, there just hasn't been anything to really, you know, spend money on. I think the money hasn't been in in you know private funding of of either incumbents trying to crack this problem or 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 startups and um you know venture money and uh you know so-called strategic money going into this area uh that so so my the misallocation is on the private side mostly and i my advice would be to scale down expectations target specific domains um and and then ask yourself but wait a minute if we solve these specific domains why aren't we seeing adoption? And then really understand that this is not a technical issue. More, it's a um, it's, it's it's sort of a, a, a job to be done, as I call it. It's like understanding what the underlying uh, demand is um, and solving it with potentially other ways. And this is why, for urban environments, I think micromobility offers a much more immediate opportunity. Uh, it's a lot less cost, um, and you must effectively reallocate space on the street to a new mode. But that's, that's again, that's we've had this discussion probably elsewhere. So I'll just simply say that I think there's, there's, a, there's a misallocation of capital towards a sexy op- you know, option in, in, my, in, in autonomy, whereas not really understanding what, what the job to be done is. So I, I'm curious, Forrest, in the history of technology, 
Is there an example uh, of um, like a large scale, like dead end where something was, could have, was demonstrated and it kind of worked, but then it, investment in progress just stopped? Yes. Uh, In the 1990s, there were so-called fifth generation computing efforts. This is very similar to sort of like moonshots we, we talk about today. Uh, the, the, there were companies, you know, and it comes to mind like Fujitsu in Japan, IBM in the United States, you know, uh, AT&T Bell Labs were also probably involved with Unixes and things like that. Um, and this, these were efforts to create an operating system for effectively supercomputers to use to, cr- to solve gigantic, you know, open problems in computing. Um, and then you, you, you may have also, you know, seen efforts similar, but not quite on the same um, grandiose scale, which is like quantum computing and things like that, um, which were, were um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say boondoggles. It implies it's sort of malicious in a way, but it, it, they were effectively a waste of money that were not supported by a, um, by a market demanding uh, solutions. And so the, usually you, you have these grandiose plans and then the winner turns out to be, uh, Microsoft Windows running on a PC that barely, you know, barely stays up for 24 hours and it crashes all the time. It's got viruses on it every day. Um, and that won, won the game. Um, and so instead of having an, a beautifully architected, engineered and well-planned government involved, um, huge research projects, uh, academia involvement, um, we ended up with uh, effectively the ad hoc world we have today in computing with winners coming out of um, either open source, which nobody funded, nobody funded, um, or Windows, which is essentially the, the vision of Bill Gates, um, you know, and, and, and not a very elegant vision, by the way. Uh, so you, you end up with, the, this is a history of computing. Um, the same thing you could say for the internet itself. The internet itself was, although it was a research project, it was built as an ad hoc effort to sort of solve a problem of routing, uh, you know, packetized data as opposed to the really reliable alternatives that people were proposing at the time based on manufacturing knowledge of, you know, how to build computer networks that were reliable and high speed and everything else. And that those failed, whereas, you know, the ad hoc method worked. Uh, and that's, you know, these are the foundations we have today of all computing, right? This is the the personal computing world and the internet computing or internet communications world. And um, and so that that's why I'm you know I've seen this in my own life. And I, I, as an engineer, I was actually very keen on the elegant solutions. I was observing this and saying, well, these guys are going to win. They've got the best minds on the problem. They've got the best support from the organizations that matter. They have the governments behind this. In fact, Japan was one of the biggest proponents of of, of this this future computing uh, technology. That that of course you know at the time in the 80s, Japan was un, un, unbeatable in every area. So, so yeah, that's where, um, that's been my school. So I'm curious, uh, because you, you also say that there'll be backlash against exaggerated claims. Now, I, I can't, I was a long time autonomous vehicle kind of skeptic or uh, opposed them for reasons we all know. But if I had to go back in time, I, I think there was, there were two statements made that set the stage for a culture of overpromising and underdelivering. Uh, the first one was the the uh, Tesla's announcement. I forget what year Ed knows that every Tesla sold is capable of full self driving. 2016, October 2016. And the other one was a headline: uh, 
Uber places order for 100,000 autonomous S classes. Mm-hmm. And between it, it, I think I'm more knowledgeable than the average person about media around autonomous vehicles. Those two things to me, like after that, everybody piled on and started saying, I've got to cat quote unquote catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, recently I've been researching all the analogies that consultants and experts and autonomous vehicle startup CEOs have used to justify why this is all going to happen quickly and you should write me a check. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them is, um, well, autopilot works. We don't need pilots, which we know is not true. Um, uh, uh, then they often talk about um, trains being fully automated, which they often aren't. Um uh, and then, you, to lesser degree, electricity and elevators, which is the one I've been really focusing on. And most recently, I was digging into the history of media around the rollout of electricity and elevators. Those the, And the two technologies um, followed a path very similar to autonomous vehicles in terms of hype, number of companies who raised money, number of failures, <laughs> and, and then consolidation. Uh, you know... In was it eighteen uh, in the eighteen sixties? Uh, we've all heard of Otis Elevator today, mm-hmm. and Otis would sell us this narrative that they, it was a winner take all market. They own it, and uh, that's the end of it. And that it all started with a single demonstration of a safety elevator in eighteen fifty four. But that's a fiction, because the most famous Otis of of the late nineteenth century was not Otis uh, Elisha Otis. It was a guy named Otis Tufts. And he was considered the genius of elevator design because he he deployed a screwdriver elevator, which was placed in several department stores in New York City, mm-hmm. which was incredibly expensive and slow and a major tourist attraction. His company failed and went away. But at that time, in the 1860s and 70s, Elisha Otis, inventor of the safety elevator, was like not a big name. Uh, but his sons, after his death, 20 what is it, 20 something years, more than 20 years after his death, ended up consolidating almost the, most of the American elevator sector. And at the time, it wasn't entirely clear that there was a market for elevators because most buildings were six stories tall. All the best real estate was ground and second floor. There wasn't, it wasn't obvious to people mm-hmm. that there was a business case for elevators. Um, but it emerged as architecture and material science um, made it possible to build taller buildings. And then real estate values inverted because there happened to be a technology, elevators, that could be developed Mm -hmm. to not just increase values, but multiply the value that could be created by adding more floors that suddenly, um, uh, instead of having one high value floor and a low floor, you could have seven or 10 high value floors above. Mm -hmm. And so my argument, and you know how I felt about autonomy three, four years ago, is that of course there is a business case to be made uh, for autonomous vehicles, and it will play out. But that I, I, I believe most of the companies that have raised money are going to go away, just shut down or be acquired. And I, that's already beginning today. Um, the, the guilty party, the guiltiest party here, I think is Travis Kalanick and his announcement from 2015, and Elon Musk, to, who continues to sell this fiction that privately owned autonomous vehicles will be cheap, mm-hmm. accessible, and ubiquitous within years. 
Yeah, the way I you you make a good point about the elevator. Actually, there wasn't a demand because buildings were not tall, but once it was available, it created demand because buildings could be tall, and therefore people would would need an elevator to begin with, and and. Um, so that would be an enabling technology, like really the job that it spawned, it, it, the, the value it created was to be able to build tall buildings. And that was what it shaped cities and what shaped how we live and that shaped the urban landscape, if you will. Uh, our built environment was could not exist without elevators and by the way, another thing that was needed was revolving doors because once you get to a tall building, you're going to have weird air currents going up and down. Um, and so, um, th- lots of lots of cleverness had to go into that. But, but to the to take that point forward about again, I think this is if anything happens with machine learning and driving, it's that it's going to enable the types of machines that would allow us to build new cities. And I would completely agree with that, but it's not going to be sold as, hey, my Tesla can drive itself. It's going to be sold either through either a taxi or some other types of vehicle, which have a narrowly defined job to do that then tell people, well, you don't really need a car anymore. And I've also said in terms of micromobility, if only that scooter or e-bike could reposition itself, recharge itself, it would change the economics. You don't need the chargers and you don't need the people to move these things around and all the energy that's associated with carrying other vehicles. And they would carry themselves to, to, to energy, which was, would actually change the economics. And to solve the problem for a scooter going at three miles an hour at night when there's no traffic to go charge itself, that would be a completely different problem and would attract, the, you know, I would say that's an investable theme and that, you know, it immediately drives the economics of scooter sharing but we're 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 still early on that as well. But that is the typical way great technology gets built, and that little company that makes an autonomous scooter might evolve into a company that makes something else autonomous, like a golf car or maybe something else bigger. So that that evolution. When I talked to Clay Christensen about autonomy again back in 2014 or so, um, I said, "What should I say about this? You know, how do you feel about micro?" I started with autonomous, and he said, "You know, look at tractors." You know, he was already quite an old man by the time, but he had that insight. We said, look, you know, look at agriculture to sort of give you an idea of, of what the evolutionary path for, for, for. And that's why I always kept in my mind, uh, you know, the domain of agriculture, the domain of military, the domain of public transport, the domain of rail, uh, even aviation, which has been solving, uh, you know, pilot uh, augmentation problems for, for decades. And yet, even those haven't eliminated the driver. The driver is still essential to to that. And by the way, the, one of the important reasons for that is because drivers actually are fairly cheap, and we think that they're a really big part. But but they can bid against machines and win. Often in this case, because they they handle the 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 outlying cases, and they also have political power, which drives the laws, which make machines not a very good uh, competitor. Um, just to jump in really quickly, you mentioned the agriculture role um, domain, but I mean, really, actually, autonomous tech, automated vehicle technology was early on in the mining industry and, and has be, become a useful application um, in some cases. And actually, I think that Alex's boss worked for worked on that for Caterpillar. So 
I mean, I think in that scenario, that that has played out. But the, the thing about that is that the, the, the theory of, of disruption suggests that those who are able to solve it in a limited domain should have the move the ability to move up markets. So that company that solves it in the mining domain should have the incentives and access to markets to sort of apply themselves to a new adjacent space. And sometimes we're, we're, that's where the, the, the obstacle lies, that there isn't an easy way for a mining company to evolve its solution into either agriculture or military or other things. And that's... That's an unfortunate uh, circumstance, but people jump out, as perhaps your boss did, um, to to uh, to start a new company and bring that knowledge forward, and then evolve it further. That's part and parcel of the process, and this is what I'm I'm trying to understand myself. If you were to be, be a betting person, you know, whom do you bet on? Do you bet on incumbents? Do you bet on uh, uh, John Deere? Do you bet on a startup? Uh, coming out of Google or and or the usual suspects, etc. So it's not at all clear that there's a there's a um, and, and I you know I, some would say bet on Tesla, but it's it's again um, yeah that's long 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 talk. Um, but I, I I many times the, the the winner comes out of nowhere and not where certainly where you would expect. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So so first of all, I want to say, um, go listen to episode 182 of the Atonicast. Uh, we talked to Nancy Post of John Deere. Um, and it was precisely because we came out of CES, or we were at CES actually, and we were sort of like, Wow, everyone is so down on AVs, um, and that particularly the issue that you mentioned about about building a, a viable business around it is where a lot of people were were having questions. And um, you know, we we just saw John Deere. Like, here's an example of a company that is building a business around automation. Again, it is because they they operate in the kind of domain um, that that is that's possible. But I think you also uh, put your finger on on something. You know, definitely like venture capital and sort of our, the, the machine that creates the technology uh, these days. Um, obviously, the way it works is it's, it's, there's sort of an underlying assumption that whatever technology you're investing in, there will be a point where the problem is quote unquote solved and it's able to scale sort of universally. And I think, I, I think we may be sort of realizing that A, like autonomous vehicles, but maybe even potentially more broadly, sort of machine learning and AI has scaling issues that are not immediately always obvious. And I think that if you think about, um, you know, the issues with algorithmic bias that are out there, right? So, so facial recognition was something that we were like, oh, you know, we've solved it. It scales. Well, the problem was, is that 
it, it doesn't really. It's deeply biased. It doesn't recognize certain kinds of faces. It, it, it has these really fundamental problems. And it's possible that because of the nature of AI, you know, you're making statistical correlations about a, a given domain, um, it makes sense that if that domain is sort of everywhere, the level five Tesla dream, um, you know, making statistical correlations about everything you will see anywhere on the road is fundamentally something that if you is going to be, especially, by the way, in a safety critical application. I think mm -hmm. that's also the piece of this that people don't necessarily understand making, you know, so I guess my question to you is, you know, are there precedents or, or you know, for technologies that don't scale the way other successful technologies have? Is there a way to build successful businesses around things that are very hard to scale and that, that sort of intrinsically take a lot of time uh, to get be it from yeah. one limited domain sort of to, to something approaching ubiquity? So let me just take this actually in, in, in question in a place closer even to, to my heart, which is uh, in the computer world, when we're struggling with uh, augmented reality and and potentially virtual reality, and in fact, there was a big there was a big nut to crack there, a big puzzle to solve with with respect to how to put on a virtual world around our our senses and and create these these artificial worlds for us to live in. And the interesting thing was that I was skeptical about that because I suffer from motion sickness, and I would I would never ever have a good experience with with a uh, over the eye kind of um, environment, um, and actually, if you dig up some papers from the 1990s when they were doing research on this for the uh, military, for ape for pilots to be able to have these uh, augmented reality, that there were always problems with uh, with a disconnect between the your 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 inner ear and what you see, and that was never solved in the 90s as a, as a research problem, which which I'm sure millions were spent. Um, but yes, and that means that people went into augmentation as opposed to uh, a virtual, virtual, complete virtual worlds. And in augmentation, you might be able to get away with because again, you're seeing the world and then you're seeing something that added to it. And and yet, and yet, and this is again, there, there are people people trying to solve this from a physiological response point of view to a computational. Uh, try to 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 create computation and the optics required. Um, all of those problems are technical problems. And yet, even if you solve all these, the question is, what is the killer app? What is it going to be used for that would compel people to move to it? And I'm wearing an Apple Watch, and I'm wearing this watch, even though in the beginning it was considered like, what is the killer app for this? And everybody was a little bit skeptical, and maybe some were cynical about it, and so on. I thought they would figure it out, and here we are. I don't know, sixth generation in, where they're saying, well, you know, it's actually fitness, which wasn't clear at the beginning. But would there, therefore, you know, you can see how watch keep, you know, timekeeping evolves into staying fit. Here's like augmented reality. What is the endpoint there, or even the middle point there, where, you know, is it just game playing? Is it deciding what to buy in terms of furniture from IKEA? That is not a killer app. So it might, it has to touch people emotionally. It has to invoke a, what I call a, a hormonal response. So which you, hormone? Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but couldn't you, couldn't you use that same thinking to, and apply it to the, we're not really sure what the killer application for our automated vehicle technology will be, and that mm -hmm. it's still worth investing time, money, allocating now even though there isn't a clear path forward in this moment. 
Well, that's the point, though, is that I, you know, I'm not a skeptic on autonomous technology. I do believe that can be solved. What I'm skeptical is about front-loading for a Hail Mary pass, which then disappoints because it doesn't win. And rather than you need, you need a, a, a tight feedback loop where you're making small wins, getting small solutions out in the, in, the, in the hands of people, which allow you to redirect your efforts towards something that actually will sustain the business. It's, in, you know, it's not a moonshot. It needs to be a bunch of small wins. So I don't know what the opposite of moonshot is, because moonshot is thought of being as a wonderful thing. But in fact, the reality is that there's very few of those every century. And, and so you, 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 you're better off solving uh, small, small problems. And that, that's what I'm thinking about also, like you said, does it scale? I think augmentation and virtuality are, are solutions looking for problems. And I think the, the same would happen with autonomy. And I, that's where I'm struggling. And I, I, you know, I want to see, you know, I think trucks, like what a really interesting um, early early solution there, and and yet it's still difficult to make money there, right? As we know. Yeah, I was so so you you just sort of referenced something you said it, earlier on, and and um, this sort of idea of a of a backlash. I mean, I don't think that's so much a prediction as you're reflecting what's happening right now, right? Like as Alex said, we had this sort of peak hype moment, and now you know there the backlash is is now in a lot of ways, and and that's why to me it. The interesting question at this point is, is that question, which I think you're also referring to here of where does the the slope of enlightenment start, right? Like mm. at what point do we get past? And, and I feel like a lot of your critiques are of sort of what was initially pitched and, and, and hyped. Mm. And I think, and I think one of the key things that, that people generally, that really throws people off in, in trying to understand exactly what you're saying about getting the small wins is the the mental model of self-driving car, right? Because like cars are this ubiquitous thing. They're everywhere and they're capable of of taking us anywhere that we want to go. Like as as long as AVs are compared to cars, they're going to seem underwhelming because Mm -hmm. cars are, you know, this foundation stone of our our material culture. It's success in AV in cars is that you're going to feel like you're in a taxi without a driver. Wow, you're gonna get bored. As everyone who's ever tried this, and I haven't, but I've been, I've met people who have, and said, "But you know, after in the beginning, it's a bit like, wow, this is interesting, and after five minutes, it's boring." That is yeah. not what will get monetized. You need to monetize passion, excitement. If if you know, if that's that's a bit of an understatement, but it's basically what are the hormones you're triggering. That's what you need to figure out because that's where people are going to uh, uh, put their money. And by the way, the, the, I think the early the, one of the exercises, one of the mental exercises I did about this is when I, I, I in, the, in an episode called the Autonomous Winnebago, when I just I just followed the logic of autonomous. If you had that technology, what would people want to hire it to do for them? And I would say it wasn't it wouldn't be that. Well, I just want to have a commute that lasts an hour and a half you know, be an hour because I'm not going to probably gain any time with someone else driving. If anything, it might even be slower because um, it's going to be cautious all the time. So maybe whatever's happening, I want to p- keep my head down and work during that time. Well, if I'm working, why not have fun instead? So, so you know, maybe, you know, I can have 
the time in the morning spent, you know, watching stuff, doing work, or but maybe even people suggested exercising. Well, then you need a bit more space. So really, the autonomous vehicle needs to have space in it. So you have like a mini, a little office. Maybe you rolled out a bed into it, and then you're going to get dressed, maybe shave, maybe put on makeup, do other things in the in the vehicles to save you time that you normally would spend at home. So it sort of becomes living space. And that's kind of interesting. But let's take that the next step. It's like, well, why don't I just sleep in it? You know, instead of like, you know, and, and then maybe I can live three hours away instead of an hour away and, you know, spend uh, a lot of time taking naps and, you know, uh, getting ready in the morning and all those other things. And I, you know, I get out of work. And if that's the case, why do I need to park this thing? I want to just let it roam around during the day and then come and pick me up whenever or wherever I might be, probably in the bar, actually, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, and that, that's the, the way you think about this. You actually progress. And what you end up with is essentially you want an RV. The, the natural home for autonomous technology is an RV. An RV. From, a consumer, from a consumer perspective. From a consumer, and that's that's why I kind of I reduced it to an absurdity. Not that it's absurd, but it's basically not a practical solution for everyone. So, what you're saying then is that the 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 way to think about this from again from the jobs to be done is like okay, if I had this technology, what would it let me do? And if you know, like like even Jay Leno said, you know, he may being a bit more skeptical than me, I think, but he said the idea that you're going to get into one of these cars and go in the back and drink drink whiskey. Uh, all day long, um, or 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 have you know parties or whatever? Uh, that's absurd, you know. But that would be exactly what people. Even the videos now show people: Hey, if I, if I can drive on the highway, what am I going to do? I'm going to basically fool around. I'm going to basically do do things which are dangerous, and and that's what I'm going to post and be proud of on social media. That is the human condition. You have to engineer for the human condition, and the human condition means. I don't have to drive. Good. Where's the whiskey? Right. <laughs> so, so you're 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 absolutely right. Like I cannot wait for a Thomas RV. Like for me, the the dream scenario is being able to go on a weekend ski trip where I get in the car on Friday night, fall asleep Friday afternoon after work, fall asleep, wake up, go skiing for two days, and then sleep on the way home on Sunday night. Like that to me is like the killer app. And then but, why not make it be a service as opposed to a product? Because then it starts to be, and then it crosses over. Well, they would just have a bus, you know, we'll put five people to do that on. I There are buses, I think, that go from LA to San Francisco where you can sleep on board, right? Absolutely. Okay. So I, I get it. My, my, my struggle, though, is that I don't see the investment dollars going into this. I see the investment dollars trying to crack the puzzle of, of a, you know, self-driving Tesla. And, and that's, that's just a fantasy to me. That, that, that's just, a, you, know, uh, that, that, you know, sorry, bluntly, it's like, it's like, it's like technological masturbation. Yeah, well, and and so 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 Elon Musk is very very good at monetizing people's sort of sense of technological expectation and 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 hopes and dreams, right? And and I think most of us agree uh, that that that's uh, kind of a scam. But but so what I want to and and you know and and I think what that shows, like what the the Tesla's approach shows, is that like this isn't ultimately really maybe a. a that much of a consumer facing thing in the traditional sense. And so I guess my question to you then is, is that what is, what is, is there a job to do for autonomous vehicles? If you think of the customer, not as consumer, Joe Blow, everyday public, Mm -hmm. but cities, governments, 
regions. B2B you know, then, B2B. then I think there's a, there's a, yeah, B2G. Yeah. Then I think maybe you can start to get a little more traction on what the job to do is, but I'm really curious what your thoughts. Problem is the governments are lousy customers. They are all very fickle. They are obviously, and the individuals making decisions are, are pulled by multiple strings in multiple directions. As you know, this is why political judgment is often lacking because you are effectively you know really not reacting to a clear signal your 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 direction is muddled and and that's why the, a, a good customer is a decisive customer a bad customer is an indecisive customer and this is why governments may, you know are generally not people who people don't want to do business with governments they're they're they also are capricious and change their minds. I mean, ask any micromobility company, you know, which uh, thought they were in the B2C business, ended up in the B2G business, and then ended up really saying uh, that it, this is a lousy business. So I that's why that's the struggle, right? I mean, a lot of the entrepreneurs out there, a lot of the founders out there, a lot of the capital out there wants to run ahead because they know that the adoption of consumers is more predictable. Let me just quickly draw up mental... A mental visual map here. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to wave my hands a lot here, but think about an S-curve. An S-curve for consumers has this sort of smooth predictability to it. And many people position their business models on an S-curve, which is sort of like early adopters, middle, and then laggards. And then where to ask, where are you to ask, what does a government adoption curve look like? Well, it's more like a step function where the beginning of the step, which is the very exciting part, the one when it takes off, it's like almost at the end of the consumer curve. So both maybe get to the top at the same time, but whereas the consumer gradually gets there, the, the state just waits and waits and does nothing, nothing for decades. And then suddenly everybody rushes in and it feels great during that brief moment of rapid adoption. But you go back and that's why I studied the history of multiple technologies. You look back at the, you know things like pollution control in, in paper mills, Things like electrification, which went very quickly, but again, a long time waiting. Or you look at things like, you know, container ports. That's a very great technology, very important technology. It all happened all at once. X-ray adoption, the adoption of X-rays and uh, and machines for uh, tomography, you know, the CAT scan. Those things were with the buyer were hospitals, and they also waited and waited and waited and waited and waited, and suddenly they all went. So this is the this is why it's difficult as a as a as a founder and as an as a capitalist to sort of approach the government as the customer because they're just going to hold off until there's groupthink and consensus that now is the time to act and as a result you never make money it's just so painful to work with that um, um, and and you you better have the right answer in fact that's why many times the the the, the technology that matures enough to be adaptable by governments has been proven through a consumer or other market or B2B market where it's been refined and refined. And finally, because it's good enough, people are willing to adopt as you know, their, their basis, basically their asses are on the line if they fail. So they're not going to do anything until it's perfect. You know, just as, uh, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times EV advocates um, uh, will say, you know, listen, if uh, the externalities of internal combustion were priced into the product, uh, it would be easy to choose an EV over over a gas car, um, and I think there is there's a similar argument to be made uh, with AVs as well. In that you know the externalities of human drivers, um, 
you know, those costs are, are sort of spread around and, 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 and not necessarily paid, you know, they're, it's not exactly bundled into the, the cost of the product. I mean, you know, uh, the, the economic impact of, of all of the crashes of all of the, um, the frankly carnage that's, that we just sort of have become very good at sort of psychologically tuning Actually, out. So I think that, yeah, yeah I just thought one thing and I got to give Alex a lot of credit here. Um, one of the things I, I said early on with, within this debate was like, what, instead of making autonomous cars, why don't we just make them safer? Because like you said, the externalities. So if you, if you think about a car that can't let you crash, that would be amazing because there's like a million people dying every year in accidents. And many of them are actually not in the car at the time. They're, they're pedestrians or, or people on two wheels. And um, and if so, if a car were smart enough to detect these obstacles and effectively deny you access to the accelerator, deny you or, you know, apply the brakes, these are things which we do in parking right now, right? We've, we've got kind of the rudiments figured out. Um, you know, you don't need the highest level of edge case analysis, but if you can actually, you know, solve the problem for 60% of the cases so that you do not allow some kid to get run over. Why don't we just implement that first? Why don't we do that? And and Alex pointed out that actually that's a tricky thing also for for aviation and how you know Boeing and and Airbus approach the same question about can you allow a pilot to crash a plane? You know, is, is why don't we permit pre- prevent the controlled what is the there's a term of art here there's a controlled flight into ground you know that's the you know that the pilot flew the damn plane into the ground right you, you shouldn't allow that. You know, machines can step in. And so why don't we bring that technology? And so to me, this is another indictment of this idea that we're going to have autonomy. Because if you were even close to good enough to doing autonomy, you should be doing it as a crash prevention technology as opposed to, hey, let's go get drink, drunk in the back. That has to be a far more worthy goal. To be clear, uh, if one were capable of building that technology into a, a consumer vehicle, one uh, one one would also be capable of d- deploying level four autonomous vehicles again. And to, maybe, to get, maybe reduce the fatalities by ten percent. I'm not saying to have it perfectly solved, but sort of in, interject in get involved in safety first as as a question. And maybe I'm wrong on, on this matter, but I would like to see progress there, and then I'll start to believe that there's progress on autonomy. Well, I, I think yeah, actually I'm, I can't believe I'm about to say that I'm the one who's about to say this. Um, the, a couple of days ago, there was a Thatcham report came out from the UK. Uh, I, Matthew, a- what's the guy's name? Avery? What's the author's name? We know him. Anyway, where they actually, for the first time, I saw a, an intelligently framed analysis of driver assistance systems incorporating the uh, – kind of the cognition deficiency, uh, the cognition gap, the deficiencies in driver monitoring into one holistic ranking of, of safety for consumer vehicles. Huh. This is the first time I saw those things glued together in like a, a, a real, like a, a quantitative way. And, and Tesla what, what suffered terribly for the lack of a driver monitoring system. And a brand, Mercedes, who I have given a lot of grief to them for I thought suboptimal driver assistance did quite well because they had a fairly um, rigorous uh, driver monitoring regime built into it. So I think some progress is being made there. I would say I'm building my thoughts on it as I speak it. 
what you say, Horace, about product market fit, like technology, it's a product market fit. Um, there, you know, eventually, in order to get to uh, an affordable, privately owned autonomous vehicle or a vehicle that had such an envelope protection system as you and I have discussed in the past, an Airbus type system envelope that limits bad inputs from a human driver while on the ground, um, to get there, one has to bring down the cost of the sensor hardware and um, have amortized the cost of the software development in some way. And to, that's only possible if a handful of players that have the financing to do so develop level four systems, whether robot taxis or, or freight delivery now, which is why I think that, I think that the time compression that uh, we're, we're going we're to see this time compression now um, where the period of consolidation and evaporation of, of weak players is going to be very rapid. You know, last year, someone said it's going to take five years. I said five months. <laughs> and, but do you think there's going to be another wave? I mean, that's usually how these things go, right? I do, I do think there's going to be another wave. Because if you look again at the elevator business and the electricity business, that consolidation took somewhere between – 20 and 40 years during an era when we did not have the level of communication and media that we have today. There's an issue that, that I think is beyond that, that, that with this idea of, of assistance and, and uncrashable car that goes beyond um, sort of what you're describing there. And that is that, right. And I think Tesla autopilot proves it, right. People don't want safety. Tesla Autopilot is a, <laughs> no, it's a popular <laughs> system because it's not safe. Ooh. Because it doesn't have driver monitoring. Because you can pull out your phone and play games while you're on the road and you should be paying attention. That is what makes it popular. People, d people would rather be lazy. And we see this in their behavior every day with normal unassisted cars. People would rather be lazy than be safe. This is the choice. They don't want it because it's unsafe. They want it because they buy the safety argument, however hollow, from Tesla, which is not safe. And they love the convenience, which they're getting. And But if you compare it's it to GM's Super Cruise, Ed's argument stands up, which is that you've said, for example, that it's um, in many ways a sup superior, but it's so limiting and there's so many rules around it that – People don't use it. Also, it's in a Cadillac, which, you know, maybe not the most exciting vehicle in the world. So that could be hurting it. Um, but if you put a uh, Super Cruise in, let's say, a more compelling vehicle, would Tesla's autopilot still be more popular? I think it would be because there's fewer restrictions. And Horace, I mean, like if, if we've gotten to the point where we have developed enough sort of psychological coping mechanisms to deal with the fact that more than 30,000 Americans die on the road every year. And that's not something that paralyzes us with fear or keeps us off the road or even makes us drive better uh, or more carefully or more attentively. I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that represent sort of a, a, an underlying challenge in this whole, whole space like that, just that psychological complex that we've had to, in some ways, I think, develop uh, in terms of how we relate to the safety of cars or lack thereof. Again, I only put these um, parad I don't know what the right word paradoxes or 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 um, of or, or parables uh, out there to challenge the assumptions about what the priorities are. And I think the priority should be 
on changing globally the perception which we take for granted. Um, you know, historically, even ideas go through an S curve. So, for example, the idea that smoking is harmful had to be adopted, and the idea that smoking is either healthful or benign had to be, you know, go the opposite way. Had to sort of be unadopted, and. There's a time frame for doing that. Even if all the evidence is there, even if all the voices speak in unison, that doesn't mean the adoption is quick. So one of the grand ideas that I think we hold, that we don't realize we hold, is exactly around this question of, well, we can accommodate, we can tolerate a certain number of fatalities. And by the way, in Northern European countries, which is where I happen to be now, um, that is not held very strongly. I mean, there is a very low tolerance for for fatalities or injuries, um, and 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 people are a little bit more sensitive. Of course, a smaller population as well, and then so they've adopted the idea of. And by the way, same thing with global warming and so on. But but even like you know, this is a very very tangible thing that people you know have been affected by, um, and. And so my, I think this is to the question of what does a technology ultimately do is it changes minds. So if we can do anything to sort of reduce our tolerance for, for, uh, for the, the toll of, of, of injury and death, um, and, um, uh, you know, but maybe as a side effect, you might actually realize that maybe, you know, you shouldn't be using a car at all, you know, uh, that there are better alternatives out there, which is why I'm advocate advocate for micromobility but yes to some extent i would say those who who even tesla's shortcomings but at least they're saying that you know our system is more likely to save lives and thus shed light on this point that there are lives lost because we tend to forget so credit there where it's due um but um yeah i i i would say fundamentally when we do see change in society it's because a large percent of the population has suddenly switched its perception of fundamentals. Uh, and we've gone through this as, as a society on many, many topics. And most recently, you know, I, as you probably know, on global warming, on the rights of, of people who are uh, marginalized, etc. So, um, uh, yeah, that's all that's all positive, I guess. It's um, it's just it's just that I'm nervous we destroy the good things when we overpromise and underdeliver, and as a result, the autonomy thing becomes a joke, and it doesn't serve the proper need of really educating people on what's more important, and also maybe you know solving narrow problems that do exist out there. And so, the, the, we I've just lived through several of these episodes of disillusionment, and disillusionment is very harsh. Um, it's it um, you you want to run away from that, and uh, it creates a specter of of um, kind of uh, a once burned twice shy kind of thing, right? So you you may kill kill the future versions of of the good idea. Uh, my friends, we need to wrap this up. But I, classic I, Alex, we do. But it's been absolutely a fascinating episode. I have one final question uh, for Horace. Uh, there was there's been some debate over whether uh, policies that have been friendly to micromobility um, at, that came out of the coronavirus lockdowns would stay. For example, there have been some slow streets initiatives in various American cities. Um, 
New York City, my, my city. And in, even in the last few days, it appears that these policies will remain. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your confidence that, that more c- cities will um, retain these programs and, and that we might, might see some good come out? Oh, of this is such a great question because it co- goes to the heart of the political process to me more than anything else to understand how politicized transportation policy is and how subtle and, and, and insidious almost it is. Here's the, here's the thing that I think about is I think about the jobs to be done, but not just of the consumer. I think about the jobs to be done of the city councilor, the jobs to be done of the mayor, the jobs to be done of the lobbyist, the NGO, and everyone else involved in this in this in this cycle. And I always think like there's probably a minority in every city, maybe sometimes tipping into the majority of individuals who have authority and power to change that city uh, through through these through these let's say uh, um, green initiatives. Uh, uh, or, or, or rather, you know, sort of the, the, the there's, there's sort of the, the, the let's, let, you know, let's call the car the, the, the antagonist here, and then sort of like, uh, although I, you know, as you know, I, I own nine cars. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, the, the, the thing about the, the, the car though is the antagonist, and so you have the, the potential for a positive uh, 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 alternative, but the way that tips over. Is very fascinating. What we're seeing with COVID is actually really an interesting kind of uh, a breakthrough in in the in the decision process. I think these these people who are in the minority suddenly had the chance to grab power and sort of effect, effectively say, "Hey, the car guys are certainly like not going to be able to fight us." And so they took power in the sense of like, "Okay, we're going to push through initiatives." And then the question is, "Okay, how do organizations behave when things get better?" And like they're this is a struggle. It's a political fight. That like, okay, we're not going to let it go back now. And then you realize that that is that the the, the antagonist has, hasn't got the power to take it back. He has the power to hold, but not give back territory or take back territory. So this is this is where we are right now. And I think that's one of the fascinating, I think, observations um, that 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 I could offer is that is that I think the, the the political shifts that are occurring are fundamental and and permanent as far as you know, maybe the car is not a good thing to have in the city after all. Um, and these these weirdos were saying this for a long time, but suddenly it becomes mainstream, and suddenly uh, the 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 auto uh, uh, incumbency, just people saying no to bike lanes, people saying no to removing parking, people saying no to to or or yes to more parking lots and more more infrastructure for cars. And now now those people are suddenly without a good argument, and they tend to fade. Yeah. I think that's a that's a great place to wrap it. I, the last thought I would add is just that I think that um, this is this conversations like this are how we get out of the trough of disillusionment and onto the slope of enlightenment because we're starting to talk about sort of what's real here and getting past the hype um, and even past the disappointment. So um, thank you so much, Horace, for uh, for as always just providing a, a such an amazing conversation. Um, this has been this has been really great um, and. Uh, I hope that uh, we continue to have more conversations like this in the future. Always a pleasure, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. And we'll see you again on another episode of the Autonicast. Take care.